0: And if you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we want to go through verses 1 through 13. Looking at this position now, the qualifications of a servant. Now you have to understand that Paul had spent uh, three years at the church at Ephesus. He planted the church. He established the church. He set leadership there in the church. We know that in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul meets with the Ephesian elders, and he gives them their, his farewell speech, and there was such a a love and a compassion and a grace for each other, and the Bible says that Paul and the leadership, they wept on each other's neck as they didn't want to see uh, Paul leave, and Paul didn't want to leave them. And so Paul leaves a young man, a young pastor, an evangelist pastor by the name of Timothy. And he leaves him there concerning uh, taking care of church order, the establishment of church government. There has to be, you know, rules and regulations. And so as Timothy now is pastoring the church, being part of this leadership, Paul writes this beautiful epistle concerning church order, and he comes to chapter 3. And he speaks about the qualifications here in these first few verses, the qualifications of a bishop. And the bishop is basically the episkopos in the Greek, but he's considered the overseer. He oversees the affairs of the church. Now, we know that Paul planted, and then Paul places Timothy, and Timothy would see oversee these affairs. But this morning, we want to make some application in our own lives, because not everybody is called to the ministry of the pulpit. Not everybody is called to the music ministry or the ushers' ministry. We have Pastor Jay that's doing children's ministry. He's the coordinator there. We have Pastor Jeff that does administration. But each one of us have a calling. And maybe you're not doing any service at all in the church, in the body of Christ. But the Bible says we're all called to serve. And the word servant is taken from the word diakonos, where we get our English word, the deacon. And we also see the deaconesses in Scripture. And basically a deacon was one that served tables one that cleaned tables, one that ran errands, one that did the menial tasks of the ministry. As you come in on Sunday mornings, you know, the chairs are are set for you. Uh, the, The area of the rugs have been, you know, vacuumed. The bathrooms are cleaned. The hallways cleaned. I mean, there's somebody that's doing that service. But each one of us are called to serve. And again, maybe you're not serving in ministry, but tomorrow you're going to go to work. You're going to be a servant there. You're going to go to school. You're going to be a servant there. We are all called to serve. And so you might go on vacation. You say, well, you know, I'm not a servant now. And you'll find that sometimes even as you go to the restaurant, you're able to share Christ. And so you become the servant of the Lord and witnessing for him. And so we can make application of this to each one of our lives. Now we're going to see that he uses uh, this faithful calling for the bishop. When we understand the bishop, the Episcopos He is the overseer. We can also equate to him being the pastor or the minister or the elder of the church. They're all synonymous. And then later on we're going to read about the deacon. But each person that's in the body of Christ serving as a pastor, a or minister, or whatever it might be, or just picking up papers. We're all servants of the Lord. And so Paul begins here, and look at verse 1, the qualifications, basically, of the overseer, the bishop, the elder. And he begins, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. And so this word, faithful saying, what Paul is saying, this is True, this is trustworthy, trustful, if a man desire the position or the office of a bishop. Now, I want you to listen to the word bishop in the Greek, which we always, you know, draw from. It is the word episkopos, and it comes from two Greek words. The first word is a p or upon, or over, and scopos means a watcher. And so literally, Paul is saying, one who watches over. And so I am the one that's called to watch over the flock here. You're called husband, wife, you're called to watch over the flock of your household. You go to work tomorrow, you're called to watch over that workplace. School, you're called to watch over that position at school. And so none of us can escape this. But it's a trustworthy calling. If a man desire the position, the office of a bishop, the overseer, one who watches over, the bishop oversees, watches over the church, or the organization God has placed him over. And so here at Calvary Chapel, basically, I'm the teaching pastor. I'm the overseer. Pastor Jeff oversees administration. Pastor Jay oversees children's ministry. And so we have those that have this ministry. Now, Wallace was up here. He's the overseer in the worship this morning. Ray will come up here on a Wednesday or a Sunday, and he's the overseer in the worship. You have your people in the back that are doing ushering. And so at that time, they're the overseers in the usher's ministry. And you have the sound people. You have the children's church, the workers, and the list just goes on. And so we all have the position. We all have the place that we're called to be the overseer. Now, let me give you a key here in verse 1. You are to be an overseer and many tasks, many different tasks. Now, Jeff doesn't just do administration. He does a lot more. Jay does not just do children's ministry. He does a lot more. And so we see this position that people are called to, and it's good. So I asked this morning, what about your position as the overseer in your household? Mom, dad, the overseer you are at your workplace. And so he's going to get into this, and it's just a beautiful place. Now, we desire this position. It's a good word. The word to desire it, listen, it means to covet But it's a good coveting. You want to do a good honest work. You want to do a good work as unto the Lord. Bottom line, the Lord has shown us uh, to be qualified as a servant. We might not have the title elder, deacon, pastor. We might not have the title as a bishop, but we're all called to serve. It's a beautiful place in in the Christian church. I want you to see that this morning. Look at verse 2 now. He continues. A bishop, this overseer, then must be blameless. The husband of one wife. He must be temperate. He must be sober-minded. He must be of good behavior. He must, must be hospitable. And here's the only difference between an elder and a deacon. The elder the bishop here, the pastor, he must be apt to teach or able to teach God's word. And so verse 2, an overseer in the church must be blameless. Irreproachable is the translation. In other words, that man could not lay a hold of a reproach upon you. I like another translation. They can't, you know, apply an accusation towards you, a crime towards you, a fault, etc. Because the, the world is always trying to, you know, tear down the leadership of the church. Now, husbands listen to this. He must have one wife. Now, I mention this because in Mormonism in time past, there was multiple wives. And then if you go back, if you're taking notes in 1 Kings chapter 11, it tells us that King Solomon had 700 wives, and he had 300 concubines. And I say, Solomon, you had to have been crazy. Now, honestly, men, don't raise your hand, but God's given us one wife. That's enough. I mean, what was Solomon, when you read the life of Solomon, the man had a lot of problems. What would he do on Valentine's Day? Give me a break but the husband, listen, of one wife, and then he goes on here in verse uh, 2, he must be temperate, self-control, and this is self-control in all things, now here's the beauty of it, it's easy to say, well, I'm self-controlled at the church, but you need to be self-controlled outside of the walls of this church, You see, it's easy to make application uh, because you're here at the chapel. You're here inside the walls of the church. But how do we live outside? Notice that he says temperate, self-control. And then another word he uses, he must be sober-minded. In other words, not drunk with wine. He's going to deal with this twice. Not drunk with wine, not insane in mind, but sane in mind and his senses of good behavior. Be orderly. In your walk with God. Now obviously we must be orderly in the church. But what about our walk at home? What about our walk at work? What about our walk at school? And then it says here that the bishop is also called to be hospitable. Now the word hospitable is to have love. Is to be generous. Is to be compassionate to strangers. Now it's easy to have the care and the compassion for those in the church. We're asking people to pray for Ralph. He's in the hospital. We're asking people, if it's possible, you can go visit, pray with him, encourage him. But what about those outside of the church? Do we invite just the church to come over and, and to break bread with us? Or do we actually go out and, you know, be hospitable to strangers? And so uh, that's one of the callings of a bishop. And then it says, able to Teach. And again, this is the difference between the elder and the deacon. But here at Calvary Chapel, we have deacons that are capable of teaching. And they've taught before, even on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. Capable of teaching here speaks of being skillful in teaching the Word of God. It's important that we be skillful in God's Word and that we don't take away and that we don't add to it. Now, as I looked at verse 2, one of my commentaries said something just beautiful, and I want you to listen. Concerning verse 2, he's speaking about a bishop. Remember, the bishop is a, uh, the elder, the overseer. And so he says, an elder of the church must be a man whose life cannot be spoken against, no accusation, against you. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exhibit self-control. He must live wisely. He must have a good reputation at church, at home, at work. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and listen to this, let it be believers and non-believers. He must be able to teach the Word of God to others. Now, those of you that come to the ministry and you sit under the teachings, you are able to grasp enough of the teaching ministry. And you will find that when you're sharing with somebody, when somebody asks you of your Christian walk, somebody asks you, well, what do you guys do at church? And you'll find yourself that you're able to teach that person individually, one-on-one. In fact, you'll be surprised how much you do know as the Holy Spirit draws out from you. And so it's important to teach the Word of God, not just the pastors and the elders and the deacons. But we should all be capable, Paul says, to give an answer to every man that asks you of the hope that's within you. Now he goes on into verse three, and he's still talking uh, concerning the bishops, the elders, the pastors, the ministers, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. And so the overseer must not be given to wine. Now, there's a two-part word here. Paronios is used in the Greek. And the word para, first of all, the first half of the word, comes, means to come alongside of the onios. Now, the onios means the wine. And so, in other words, to come alongside the wine or one who sits long at the wine. Another translation is one who becomes quarrelsome or a brawler over the wine. Now, those of you that before you came to Christ and maybe you were involved in alcohol like I was. And so quarrelsome uh, becomes part of your life when you've been intoxicated. It doesn't take much to to get you mad, get you angry. And before you know it, you're in this argument and it can even go further. And then he goes on, an overseer must not be violent. Now, this is continuing here with a brawler must not be violent, a striker, a smiter, one that's pugnacious, one that actually fights or fisticuffs. Now, I need to encourage you in this area, husbands especially. That doesn't mean that we turn the other cheek if somebody's attacking my wife. You're there to defend her, you're there to protect her. And I don't believe you're necessarily have to turn the other cheek if somebody attacks you. The Bible gives us that place that we can defend ourselves. Now, we're not looking for trouble. And you might try to talk your way out of it. But how could a husband say, well, I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. This guy's attacking my wife. No, you better take care of business. And so it's important to see this here. But yet we're not called to be strikers. We're not called, uh, you know, to be one that likes sophisticates. And then he goes on to the finances. An overseer must not be Greedy. Listen to the translation, driven by money. Pastor Chuck said this, and he speaks from much experience. Greediness among church officials is the curse of today's modern church. And that's so true. When we use the pulpit for greed, when we use the pulpit to manipulate people in their giving, when we use the pulpit, listen, for personal gain, And it so easily happens. And so then he goes on and he leaves this portion, but he'll be back to it. But the overseer must be gentle, must be patient, must be mild, must be kind. There has to be kindness. An overseer must not be quarrelsome. And here the word is contentious, but he must be peaceable. And then he goes on, an overseer must not be covetous. He comes back to the finances. And here the translation of covetous, uh, he must not covet, not loving gold, silver, precious stone, not loving mammon. Now it's obvious, you know, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, you know, we need a salary. We need, you know, finances just like anybody else. And sometimes the church is capable of taking care of a salary. But then sometimes you have to work outside the church just as you work. And so the Bible says that the workman is worthy of his hire. But he's speaking about the church. The leadership of the church is never to be covetous. Now, I look at these verses this morning and I ask this question what do the faith and prosperity teachers and the faith and prosperity ministries that we hear today on radio and on television? How do they deal with this? You know, sow a seed of faith to this ministry, become partners to this ministry. If you give $100, God's going to give you back $1,000. They manipulate God's word. And yet the Bible says that we are called to give. But to manipulate people? And that sometimes happens too much in the church. I want you to turn to a passage with me. Go to the book of Hebrews. And go to chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. You know, God forbid that we would ever start, you know... A bingo game here on a Wednesday night instead of teaching the Word. God forbid that we, you know, have gimmicks and programs and, and, you know, we devise things, how to raise money in the church. Man, we have to purpose in our own hearts as God has called us to give. But sometimes it's used for the pulpit. But listen to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 5. And so the writer of Hebrews says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Let it be without covetousness. Let it be without greed. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, he's speaking of Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then he goes into verse 6. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We need to be content. Where God has us. Now, you know, maybe the Lord will never give you a house. Maybe you're always going to be in an apartment or you're going to be in a trailer. Maybe you'll never be able to own a house. Does that mean that God loves you less than the other pastor, the other Christian, the other believer, the other friend that does have? We're to be content. Be content. And be careful with some of these ministries where the pastor lives above the means of the people. We were taught in shepherd school years ago that we should never be, you know, living above the people in our church. And so imagine if, you know, I'm raising funds for, you know, a half a million dollar house or a million dollar house, and, you know, you're barely making it. It just doesn't sit right. If you go today to Costa Mesa... Pastor Chuck still has the same house. As far as I know, Pastor Chuck has never bought a brand new car. He loves those big old olds 88. He loves to get them with a rebuilt engine, and he'll drive them until they're done. He doesn't like the new cars. He says they're, they're, too, they're too small. I agree with that. And they fall apart too easily. But never live above the means of your people. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things that you do have. Lord, thank you for the uh, apartment. Lord, thank you for the trailer. Lord, thank you for that piece of land we're saving, we're wanting to build. We know the time will come. Thank you, Lord. Be content, church. Be not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle not quarrelsome, not covetous. Look at verse 4 now. Let's go back to our text. And again, he's speaking about the leadership, the bishop, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. I like that. So again, this overseer must rule his own house well first. How can he be in charge of the church if he's not ruling his house well first? And that means the word to rule means to manage, to preside over his own personal affairs, his own personal house. The overseer must have his own children, listen, in submission with all reverence. And the word reverence that's used there, that his children would be in obedience and with all honesty and respect. And so here we see the picture of a godly home. And it's not always easy. My wife and I, you know, we raised the four girls and they're out of the house now. They're out of school and two of them are married. We got grandchildren and we just thank the Lord how they, you know, have come out. Because we know pastors and they struggle with some of their kids. Oh, our kids got into some trouble when they were in high school and such. But, you know, we all go through those pains But it hurts when you see your own children. You're trying to govern, you know, the house of God. And yet your own household is falling apart. And so it's important that we see this. Now, how can I accomplish these things? One who rules well his own house, having his children in submission. There's a beautiful passage. I want you to write it down. In John chapter 15, in verse 5, we know it's the story of the vine and the branches. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. I need to be plugged into him. Bottom line, I can't do it without him. I know school's just starting up, and a lot of you will be struggling in school. Some that are barely going into, you know, junior high. Some that are going into high school now. Uh, some that are starting college, and, you know, you go, well, how am I going to do it? And again, you need the help of the Lord. We run our households with the help of the Lord. We run our ministries Whatever God has called me to with the help of the Lord. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, now mark these words down. Without me, without me, you can do nothing. And I can testify to that all the years that I tried to do it Bob's way. You tried to do it your way. And it just seems that when I tried it my way, when you try it your way, sooner or later we're going to fail miserably. And it seems like when I finally come to the Lord, the Lord asks me, Bob, what are you doing with that stick in your hand? What stick? I don't have a stick in my hand. That stick that you stirred this mess up with. And I go, oh, that stick. We're good at it. We're good at it. Sometimes we have two sticks, three sticks, and we're just always stirring up the pot. And then we finally cry out to the Lord. But praise God when we do. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And so how do I govern? How do I rule my household? How do I rule? How do I govern at the church or the ministry that God might give me? I must put Christ first. He has to be first in everything. I mean, just look at our BC days before Christ. And he wasn't first. Look at all the problems we got into. And so Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Then he clarifies it into verse 5. Let's go back to our text. And he says, For if a man does not know how to rule again, manage his own house, how will he take care of the church? How will he take care of God's church? If the overseer cannot manage uh, over his own personal affairs, his own personal house, concerning his wife and his children, his financial uh, situation... Then how will he be able to manage over the church which belongs to the Lord? And he paid a price for it. He died for that church. God basically places the overseer, the elder, to manage over his affairs. God's church. God's affairs. You know, from time to time, people will say, how's your church doing? And I have to remember, it's not my church. It's God's church. But it's easy to say, my church. And we're proud sometimes. Well, you know, I'd like to invite you to my church. But in all reality, it's God's church. And God has placed me as the manager, the overseer. God has placed you. I mean, you can say, this is my house. This is my wife. This is my children. But if you're Christian, husband, God has placed you there. He has given you the ability to manage that household well. Now, there's a beautiful passage of Scripture. I want you to turn to it. Go with me to Luke chapter 10, and we're just going to deal with two verses, but I want you to see it. Concerning having this rule over, one of the cross-references in my commentary that I was reading, it gave us the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan learned how to rule his affairs well. He sees this man that had fallen by the wayside, and he was attacked by robbers. He was beaten. He was left for dead. Now, the story goes on that this Samaritan comes by, and he sees the man that had been beaten and robbed, and he was coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, he's giving a a metaphor here. He's basically giving us a parable, a storyline, and so he lays down this story. Now, they knew that the road was treacherous, That road from, you know, Jerusalem to Jericho, it was a downhill grade. It was a kind of a a hilly area, a mountainous area. It was a passage that many would go there. And it was known for robbers and thieves that would hide, you know, in the crevices. And then they'd pounce on you. And so he tells a story that a man was robbed and was beaten and was left for dead. And then he says, along comes a Levite. And then he sees him, but he walks away from him. And then a priest comes by, and he sees the man, and he walks away. Now, many believe this man that was beaten could easily have been a Jew. And for the Levite and for this priest to touch something that's possibly going to die is unscriptural. But then a good Samaritan goes by, one that rules his house well. I believe this good Samaritan could have been a Gentile. And he comes by. And I want to read these two verses to you. In verse 34. So he went to him. This is the Good Samaritan. He goes to the man that's beat up and bloodied. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. And he poured oil and wine upon him. And he set him on his own animal. And he brought him to an inn. And he took care of him. You see that is one that rules his household well. You're able to take care of others needs also. You're not just concerned of yourself. You're not like the Levite. You're not like the priest that saw the man and went the other way. But this man, not only did he, you know, give him the oil and the wine and took care of his wounds, and then he puts him on his animal. And I love verse 35. The next day, when he departed, he took two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, and he said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, When I come again, I will repair you. Now, it was customary at the time that one denarii was a day's wages. So I want you to think of this good Samaritan. He gives him two days wages. And let me just set up the scenario. You see somebody that's hurting, somebody that's down and out. And you take him over here to the rescue mission. You've already taken care of him as much as possible. But you have a journey ahead of you. You have a business affair. You have to keep going. And so right there at the welcome in there, excuse me, not the welcome in. (laughs) Boy, the story was going good until then. The rescue mission, the welcome in, for those of you that don't know, is a bar that's been closed over here. But you don't want to take him to the welcome in. So you take him to the rescue mission. Thank you, Jesus. See what happens when you get excited? I'm never going to live that one down. And so he leaves, not two denarii, but he leaves his credit card. Or he leaves his debit card. Please take care of this man. And when this two denarii, if I don't get back in time, when the two denarii are taken care of, you know, it's already, he leaves some money and it's done with. Now take it out of my car. You see, that's a servant of God. That's a servant of the Lord. That's one that rules well his own house. That's one that's hospitable. That's one that's able to reach out to not just the ones he knows, but to reach out to the down and out. And so the story of the Good Samaritan is a beautiful story. And so when we're called to to walk with the Lord, when we're called to Christianity The Bible says the word Christian is to be Christ-likeness. Now some believe in this parable, in this story, this priest and this Levite were part of the school of ministry that was in this area. Imagine being part of the school of ministry, and then here's ministry right here. The man's down and out, broken. And you just pass him by. One that rules well his own household. Now he goes on. Look at verse 6 now. And so the bishop, the elder, the pastor is not to be a novice. And that is so simple to understand. He's not to be a a novice, a rookie, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Now, when you read the book of Galatians, Paul tells us, tells the church at Galatia that he had spent, after his salvation, Paul spent three years in Arabia. They're in the desert, and the Holy Spirit was teaching him. We can't just be placed into ministry immediately. There's a process of learning. There's a process of trial and, and, and tribulation. There's a process of God making us that man, that woman of God. And so, not a novice, lest he get puffed up in his pride. And then the condemnation of the devil takes over. But look at verse 6 again. Let me break it down. The overseer must not be a novice, one that's newly planted or newly converted, one that just recently come to saving grace, a recent convert of Christ, because he could so easily be puffed up with pride. The word uh, puffed up with pride, he could be inflated with conceit. He literally becomes a big bag of wind that eventually is going to break. The Greek is saying, lest he be wrapped in smoke. And so the logic there, to be wrapped in smoke. I mean, that is so temporal, it's not going to last. Sooner or later, they will see his conceit. That he fall into the same condemnation, the same judgment as the devil. Now, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you two passages of scripture. And I'm just going to share the story. In Ezekiel chapter 28, Lucifer was in charge of the music in heaven. Many believe that Lucifer was the third archangel. The other two were Michael and Gabriel. Now, we know that he was in heaven. He was a created angelic being. The Bible says he was beautiful. And that he was in charge of the music. But something happens to Lucifer. The other passage of Scripture is in Isaiah chapter 14. Lucifer's pride takes him down because he wants to be on God's throne. In Isaiah 14, it's called the five I wills of Lucifer. And basically, he looks at the throne of God and he says, I can do that. I want God's throne. And he just kept saying, I, I, I. And then God said, no, you're not. The Bible says that he was cast down into hell. And Lucifer has been tempting man forever. You see, pride was the downfall of Lucifer. Pride could easily be the downfall of a novice. Pride comes after even a mature man, a mature woman in Christ. Now I want you to listen to this passage in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. The proverb says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, listen to the Hebrew, the Hebrew words of Proverbs 16, 18. Arrogance, that's pride. Arrogance goes before ruin or a lofty spirit of pride before destruction. And this destruction, the devil's downfall. It's sad when you see a man of God, a woman of God, That pride has set in. And when you know pride's working is when you say, I'm not that bad. I'm not sinning that much. And pride sets in. Pride. Now, there's a time and a place for pride. We're we're proud, you know, of our heritage. We're proud of our sport events and such. And, you know, right now everybody's watching the Olympics and, and the pride when we see the United States, you know, scoring a gold. And so there's good pride. But be careful when this pride, when you're a Christian and it takes you down. Pride was the downfall of those two men that didn't want to help the man that was broken. And these people were, you know, part of ministry possibly. You have a, a priest and a Levite. And yet a good Samaritan, possibly a Gentile, comes by and he helps out. Pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before the fall. Radical statement. So we wait till, you know, somebody's mature. We wait for somebody that they grow in the Lord. And we acknowledge and we see the call of God upon them. Look at verse 7. Let's go back to our text now. Moreover, he must have a good testimony. This is the the leadership, the, the bishop. He must have a good testimony among those who are outside. Notice that Paul didn't speak about your testimony inside the church. But the importance first of your testimony outside, lest he fall into a reproach and a snare of the devil. And so again, the overseer must have a good testimony, an honest witness, that's a translation, an honest report, another translation, an honest reputation outside of the church. And let's ask some questions now. Does the community that you live in do they see and experience your honest witness? You're the bishop of the church? You're the pastor of the church? You're the elder? You're the minister of the local church or you know you're the deacon there? Or they know you're part of the church there? Again, you could be up here in the music, you could be in the back with the children, you could be in the back with the sound room and now you've let it be known. But how's your witness? Outside of the church. Hmm. Some of you, as we did years ago, your kids play sports. Your kids part of the Little League team over here at the local park. And everybody knows you're a Christian or they know I'm the pastor. You go down to watch your kid and the umpire calls your kid out, And all of a sudden you lose it. And you use some superlatives to let him know. And he turns around, Pastor Bob, is that you? You're blowing your witness. You have blown your witness. Let me tell you, years ago when we played sports, the umpire was the rule. The coach was the rule. (laughs) There's no rule today. You've seen some of these documentaries. Mom and dad are in in the bleachers and little Johnny gets called out at second. Wham, they go down to the field. They start arguing with the umpire, and the umpire says, I'm sorry, he's out. Wham, somebody punches him, and it's mom. (laughs) And then you invite him to church next Sunday? Be careful. Or you're well-known at church, and then you go to the PTA meetings, and they know who you are. They know you're part of the church. They know you're the pastor, and then you cause disruption. Over here, I think it's on Tuesday nights, they have public open meetings for those in City Hall. And I've known pastors that go in there, and some of the leadership there of the city don't like certain pastors because they're very politically minded. And they come in and they argue their their soapbox. Imagine what a witness. Oh, here comes Pastor So-and-so. You deal with them this week. It's important that we have a good report A good testimony outside of the church. Oh, it's easy to come into the church. God bless you, brother. God bless you, sister. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We all know the Christian jargon. I like what Pastor Greg Laurie says. We all know Christianese. But how do we act outside of the walls of the ministry? Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into a reproach and the snare of the devil. How many good men, good women of God have been taken down because they listen to the tactics of the enemy. We are servants of the Lord and servants of those outside the church as well as inside. Now verse 8. He switches gears here. And he's not talking about the pastors, the elders, the bishops, the ministers, but he talks about the deacons and the deaconesses. And again, he says the wives of the deacons, as well as he had said the wives of, of the bishops. And so the word deacon is the word diakonos. And it comes from that Greek word that basically says, I'm a servant. I'm, I'm taking, you know, this this cloth, and I'm going to clean tables. I'm taking this trash can, and I'm going to pick up papers. I'm a servant of the Lord. And so he begins to give these qualifications. Now, I like what he says here in verse 8. He begins with the word likewise. In other words, what I've been sharing with you, Paul says, already concerning the responsibilities of a bishop. Likewise now. He says the deacons must be reverent, not double tongued, not given too much wine. He goes back to the wine, not greedy for money. Seems to be an issue in the church then and still today. So here in verse 8 the servant deacon, the attendant, the waiter, the minister, the servant deacon of the Lord must be reverent, must be respectful, and he must have integrity. And listen to this, not double-tongued. You speak one thing at church, and you say something else at work, at home, at school. Not given too much wine. Now, again, the Bible does not teach that you're going to go to hell because you have a glass of wine or a glass of beer. But the Bible teaches that a drunkard will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus... That Paul was writing to Timothy that he left him there in charge. He writes this in Ephesians five eighteen: Be not drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In excess, which causes riots, riot conditions. The servant, the deacon of the Lord must not be greedy. He goes back to the word greed. Must not be greedy for money. The King James here is very strong. He must not desire filthy lucre. The word filthy lucre in the Greek, uh, the King James is kind of a weird terminology for us, but it means dirty money. Vine's Dictionary says that this word filthy lucre is gaining money, ill gained to get gain. Filthy lucre is one of the words used only here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, and in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. Thayer's Thayer's Dictionary of Greek Word says this, one who is found of dishonest gain. It's sad when we use the position of the church or you use the position outside the church or the church leader uses it outside the church also for personal gain in or outside the church. What a bad testimony. Listen, number one, before God, And secondly, a bad testimony before man. And man says, if if that's the Christian, I don't want to go to church. The role of the deacon, the servant of God, is to be a humble servant. In all reverence. In all reverence. Wolverd and Zuck, in their commentary, said this. To be a man of respect. To be a serious man to be men of integrity, men of dignity, not fools, men of honesty, not men of hypocrisy. Why? Because we serve the Lord first, and then we serve men. In Matthew chapter 15, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 13, I believe, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. The Bible says that They were having, getting ready. In fact, they were having the supper. They had the supper. They had broken bread, but nobody had washed anybody's feet. The culture of the time, when you came to the house, they would sit you down. They would wash your feet in a basin, and then they would anoint you with oil, anoint your feet, and you would be welcome to come into the meal. Nobody did that. That was the job of a servant. The Bible says that Jesus took, he took a towel and he girded himself. And he washed the disciples' feet. That's a servant of the Lord. So important to see that. And so then he goes on now to verse 9. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. In other words, no longer is it a mystery, but now it's been divinely revealed to, to God's servants, God's deacons. How? By the power of God's Holy Spirit. Having faith in a pure conscience. Listen to the translation. Keeping the revealed secrets of God's belief system in a clean, pure conscience. Having a cold knowledge with oneself. What the Greek is saying, you know why you believe. And you know what you believe. The Holy Spirit has shared that with you. Remember when somebody shared, listen, Bob, you need to be born again. I didn't understand. Listen, you need to confess your sins to God, and he will forgive you. He will wash you, when you first heard this, he will wash you in his precious blood. I mean, if you're not knowledgeable, it sounds gross. But we know that we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. The Greek says you know what you believe, and your spirit, your soul, your conscience verifies it in your mind, your heart, your soul, by the Spirit of God. Remember when you first heard the terminology of the rapture of the church? The seven years of tribulation? The millennial reign of God? If you were not knowledgeable, you didn't understand. But once you come to saving grace, you see a mystery in scripture was a previously hidden truth, now divinely revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. So when you hear the terminology born again, now you know. You hear the terminology, the rapture of the church. Now you know. Because the Holy Spirit has taught you. Notice as it goes on into verse uh, 10 now. But let these also, he's talking about the deacons, let these also uh, first be tested. Let them first be tried. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Again, it goes right along with putting the novice in there right away. Let the servant, let the deacon be tested, let him be proved, tried, examined, scrutinized. Let him be approved of God. See if they can do the work of God. After this, then let them serve. We never deny anybody if they want to serve. I mean, if you have an inclination in your heart that God calls you to serve, there's so many facets. Like I said, somebody cleans, somebody vacuums, somebody washes windows, somebody does ushering, somebody does children's church. We're all called to serve. It's important that we see this calling. Let them minister in ministry of a servant of God. That's what he's saying. The Greek word diakonos, let them be an attendant, a waiter of table, one who performs the menial tasks of the ministry. Now, put your thinking caps on. You can take this as a note. Back in Acts chapter 6, there was an argument with the Grecians and the Hebrews. Who's going to take care of the administration of our widows? The church was growing rapidly. And the leadership there was, you know, inundated with work. And so the leadership said to the congregation, they said, Look among you for seven men full of the Holy Spirit, of good reputation, one that you would love to appoint. They have a testimony that they may do these tasks of taking care of, you know, the widows, of the Grecians, the widows, of the Hebrews. Now, don't misunderstand that. Then the leadership said, so that we can give ourselves to prayer and to study of the word. I appreciate so much the work that Pastor Jeff does in Pastor J. The work that gives me time for prayer and study of the Word. And, and, you know, time passed. My wife and I used to do all the work that needed to be done. But praise God as he lifts up ushers, as he lifts up, you know, people that are going to, you know, clean and such. And it's not just all done by one person or one family. So it's important to see this. Now he goes on into verse 11. Likewise, their wives. Now he speaks about the ladies. So this is likewise again. We spoke about the elders. We spoke about the bishops. What about their wives? Now we're speaking about the deacons. What about their wives? Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Of like manner again, going back to what we've already been sharing. Let the wives be reverent. The word in the King James is grave. Let them be honest, respectful, women with integrity. Goes back to the same passage of verse 8. She must never be slanderous. Now listen to the Greek here. The Greek word is diabolos, one that causes gossip. Now it's interesting. Usually men are quick to blame the woman for gossip, but men are just as capable And so be careful that we don't become slanderers, one that's a diabolos, one that, the Greek translation, one that becomes devilish, a false accuser, acting like the devil himself. And if you've been in ministry long enough, you've been in the church long enough, listen, I've seen men, I've seen women become very devilish, and they call themselves Christian, and I believe they're saved. But man, the enemy gets in there and again stirs the pot up. Slanderers. Vine's Dictionary of Greek Words calls them gossipers, doing the devil's business. The wife of a deacon must also be temperate, sober, vigilant, alert. She must be faithful. Listen to this. In all things. The word faithful, she must be trustworthy. Trustworthy. Verses 12 and 13, we're going to come to the conclusion. Let the deacons be husbands of one wife. He goes back to that same logic. Let the deacons be husbands of one wife. And again, just as the elders ruling their children and their own houses well. The servant deacon, the diaconos, is the same call that the bishop elder. He must be the husband of one wife. One that rules well. Again, manages well, presides well over their own children and their own personal affairs, the word that he uses well can be translated good and honest, as an honest Christian. The Bible says that they called them Christians first at Antioch. They used to say those of that way. They couldn't say Christian. And then finally at Antioch, they labeled them Christian. And the word Christian is Christ-likeness. So when I call myself Christian, I have to ask the question, do they see Christ in me? Do they see Christ through me? Jesus was hospitable. Jesus was kind and gentle. Jesus was forgiving. And so I want to be more like Christ. Or do they see me slanderous, devilish, diabolos? Oh, there goes that Christian. You better stay away from them. It's sad when you get that type of reputation. Let us be of good, honest report. Look at verse 13. For those who have served now well as deacons, notice what happens. They obtain For themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith with which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, those that are deacons, those that are elders now, have used the ministry of a servant. They've used it well. Servants, deacons. They've used it with honesty. Listen to what happens. They obtain or they acquire, they purchase for themselves. The King James says a good degree. Now, the word good degree is not speaking of an academic degree, but the word degree is an honest rank, an honest standing, an honest grade. And here's my opinion. You've obtained now as a servant that badge of a servant. Jesus took the badge of a servant. He took a towel and he girded himself. The honest badge of a servant Upon yourself as into the Lord. It's all done in good standing, church. The word good standing, great confidence, great boldness in the faith. What is the faith? The belief system that I believe that Jesus died for my sins and the sins of the world. That you have Jesus in your heart now. Now this word boldness, because I, I, let's go back to the very beginning. Maybe I'm not an elder of the church, a bishop of the church. Maybe I'm never going to be a deacon of the church. But the Bible says that I'm called to saving grace. I come to saving grace. I'm called now to be a servant. And a servant has many facets. I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, takes off his outer garment, puts on, you know, the badge of a servant, girds himself with a towel, and he washes stinky feet. That's a servant. Albert Barnes speaks about being bold in your servanthood. I like this translation. The word here, Albert Barnes says the word boldness properly refers to boldness in speaking forth. The word is commonly used to denote boldness of any kind of openness in your boldness, frankness in your boldness confidence in your boldness, assurance in your boldness. Again, you can only do this through the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so God gives us the words to share. And God gives us the boldness. If if, if some of you have experienced when you share Christ with somebody, initially we're afraid, initially, you know, I'm I'm gun-shy. But once I start sharing, you'll be surprised. The Holy Spirit gives you the unction. The Holy Spirit gives you the boldness. And now you're not tearing them down, but you're just sharing the love of Christ. You see, that's a servant. That's a servant. And then people do see you at the PTA meetings or they do see you at the city hall or they do see you in the ballpark. And they said, you know what? I want to be like them. Because they see Christ in you. These are the qualifications of a servant. One that takes on the menial tasks. We are all servants of the Lord. Let's stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. We're going to continue next week. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Isaiah tells us your word that will not come back void. But Lord, let your word Speak to our hearts. Let your word speak to our very souls. And, Father, maybe there's somebody here this morning that's never made, first of all, how can we be a servant of the Lord if we haven't made that commitment, first of all, to Jesus? If we're not born again of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to take this opportunity. I'm not here to judge anybody. Not here to embarrass anybody, but with every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure, but you don't know Christ. I want to give you that opportunity. I'm not going to ask you to come up, but right there where you're at, if you raise your hand, I'll say a simple prayer of faith with you. Anybody here this morning before we close would like to accept Jesus. I see your hand way back there. Anybody else? would like to receive Christ this morning. Praise the Lord. Then if we're all Christian, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love and your mercy. Lord, I thank you for this young man uh, way in the back that raised his hand. Lord, you know his heart. You know his sins. Lord, forgive him. Cleanse him. Wash him. Make him afresh and anew, Lord. Come into his life and govern him, Lord. Bring him to that place of salvation. Pour your grace upon him, Lord. In Jesus' name. Lord, for the rest of us, we pray that you would continue to move upon our hearts. Lord, that we would take heed to what the Spirit of the Lord was speaking to us this morning concerning being a servant of the Lord. Lord, we want to serve you because you served us by dying on the cross for us. Lord, bless your people as they've come. Father, as we receive the offerings at the end of the service, bless the offerings. As you've given to us, we give back a portion. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.